Lord, this morning before we climb into uh, the word that you have for us, we want to lift up another pastor and his wife. I want to pray for Luke and Emily Panter. And I want to pray for, first of all, for their worship as individuals and as a couple. I pray that they are enjoying you. I want to pray that uh, some of the difficulties of um, ministry that you will um, not keep them from, but that you will bring them through, that they may know you more and trust you more and have a, um, a greater satisfaction with you and your work through those things. Lord, I pray that you will guard their marriage, um, that it actually will be and continue to grow to be a picture of the gospel for their kids and for their people that they're walking with. They'll see what it looks like for Christ to love the church in the way that Luke loves Emily, in the way that uh, Emily follows Luke. I pray that they'll see a picture of what the church is to Christ and um, an adoration, a contentment with, an enjoyment of Luke that points to the gospel. Um, Lord, I pray for the ministry that they are involved with and in in Quinlan. Lord, I pray that you are drawing people to yourself. We pray that they are putting the gospel on display, not only in their marriage, but in their message. I pray that week by week that Luke is bringing the word, that he has time to prepare the word. I pray that deacons are deaconing. I pray that he has a plurality that's walking alongside him that makes up the difference where he leaves off and that provides time for him to engage you and enjoy you and climb the mountain to get the message. Lord, I pray that you will guard him and that you'll guard this people from expecting all things from one man and that you can speak sufficiently and adequately through him week to week. Lord, I pray for this church in Quinlan that it is enjoying you. I pray that it is growing in wisdom and wonder and worship and obedience. Lord, I pray that it is a salty, bright, aromatic people in Quinlan. Lord, whatever way possible, whether it's just through friendships or through uh, bumping into each other, I pray that we cheer for each other. And that would be true of every church in this community, that we cheer for each other and want great things for each other. And guard us, forgive us for ever having hearts of competition, um, but that we can want your name and renown and fame to be great among all peoples that bear your name. Lord, in these next few minutes, we pray that your name is enjoyed. pray that your ways are enjoyed. I pray that hearts are settled, that eyes are opened, that we see your hidden smile behind difficult times in these next few minutes. We turn them over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in John chapter 16. I'll be beginning in verse 16 and going through the rest of the chapter. These are hours before Christ is crucified or uh, arrested and then the eve before the night of his crucifixion the next day. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me seems to be talking of the cross here, as you'll see later. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will see me, 
and again a little while and you will and you will, or you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me and because I'm going to the father so they were saying what does he mean by a little while we do not know what he's talking about and Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him so he said to them is this what you're asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice it's pointing to the cross. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. That's the essence of this morning's message right there. Your sorrow will be turned into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. <laughs> I hope you see that I heard of some snickers there. I'm snickering too. <laughs> Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, this has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. This morning, what I'd like to do, I want to give you kind of a plan. We're going to look at this passage really in three little sections. Um, verses 19 and 20, verses 21 and 22, and then verses 32 and 33 that I believe get at the heart of what this passage is about. It's a difficult passage. If you were paying attention and you snickered along with a few others where they're saying, now we get it. I snicker too because it is a difficult passage. And it seems to be talking about figurative language here and talking in riddles or parables. And I didn't understand this. What does he mean by this? It's hard to get to the point of the passage. But I believe where we're going to look this morning is we're going to get to the point of this rest of this chapter. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples on the night before he is crucified. Looking first at verses 19 and 20. I'm going to read them again. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and yet a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. This is hours away. But the world will rejoice, and the world in that case would be Jerusalem world. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into, or will turn into joy. He's speaking here specifically of the disciples' pain and grief that's in store 
in losing the teacher that they left all to follow. They left their boats. They left their versions of work trucks. They left their families. They left their loved ones. They left their friends to follow this teacher that they believe is the Lord, the Christ that's going to deliver them, really mistakenly, from the hand of Rome. This is the same Lord that they left everything to follow that they watched Jerusalem cheer for only days before. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, throwing palm fronds down in front of them. And here they're watching this. They're going to watch this drama unfold where this teacher that they left everything to follow, this Lord that they believe is the Christ, their deliverer, is nailed to a cross. And they will experience severe grief and severe, severe sorrow. But Jesus makes this promise. It will turn to joy. He knows full well that there's terrible pain, terrible sorrow, terrible loss in store for his followers. Not just these guys, but us as well. But the promise for God's people is that when Christ seems far away and hope is dim, we can look to him and cling to him and our sorrows too will be turned to joy. The sweet promise of this passage isn't that sorrow is somehow drowned out by joy. Like there's these two scales and somehow there's more joy than sorrow. That somehow this terrible, horrific event will be sort of clouded out or diluted out by some future joy. He specifically says it will be turned into joy. It will be transformed into joy. The terrible event that would be their greatest sorrow that likely they have ever experienced will later be the same event, their greatest joy. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. I want you to see the difference between what he's saying here and where we go often and where the world wants to take us to a place of positive thinking. Where there's some crummy, horrible event, but we'll try and add up some positive aspects or some potential positives that we can somehow put on top of that to somehow cover and conceal the ugliness of it. We're not talking about positive thinking here or blocking something out until something's not painful anymore. We're talking about a very real sorrow that is transformed into joy. This happens and only happens when an event takes on a whole new meaning. This painful event, we'll find, has design. This painful grief has purpose. And in that, it becomes a joyful event. Only God could do that. You remember the story of Joseph. I think I'll just keep you from turning there. I'll give you references. I'm not going to share the whole story of Joseph. But Joseph's story is a great illustration of how God works and how God can do this. If you're familiar with Joseph's story, you know that he was <clears throat> one of 12 brothers. He was hated by his brothers. And if really you're reading the story closely, you kind of understand why. He's kind of a tattletale. And on top of that, he's Jacob's favorite boy because he's the son of his old age, Jacob's old age, that is. And Jacob slash Israel gives him a coat 
coat of many colors, this special coat, this obvious sign of his father's enjoyment of him. And he is hated by his brothers. His brothers hate him so much that they conspired to kill him. But thankfully, Reuben steps in and said, no, let's not do that. So what they do instead is they take his coat from him. And to me, that's, that's heartbreak enough. I bet some of you, many of you, have something that a family member has given you that is cherished. My dad gave Luke something that he, has, he had um, prepared. He didn't prepare, but he had someone prepare. It was this walking cane that has a, a carved dog on the top of it. And Luke has almost, I'm surprised he doesn't have it right now. He's almost been inseparable from this walking cane since his granddad gave him that cane. You think about the heartbreak of somebody taking something like that from you, your own brothers, no less, taking a coat of many colors that your dad, whom you cherish also, gave to you. They take this coat, they throw Joseph into a pit. They take the coat and they kill a goat or something and put blood all over it. They take it back to Jacob and tell Jacob that his boy is dead, slaughtered, killed by critters. Some Midianites pass by and they buy their brother. They buy Joseph from his brothers and he's sold into slavery. He goes to the land of Egypt. He works for a man named Potiphar. Potiphar, he does a great job for. He honors Potiphar. He serves him well, but Potiphar's wife has a hots for him. Apparently, he's a handsome lad. Potiphar's wife makes the moves on him, but he flees any opportunity to do that. And she's so angry about it that she turns it around on him and tells Potiphar that that he made the move on her. So Potiphar says, Joseph, what have you done to me? I'm throwing you into prison. He goes into prison for years. While in prison, he has a couple of cellmates, the, I got to get these guys right, the cupbearer and the baker. I want to say butcher and candlestick maker too, but (laughs) it's just the cupbearer and the baker. And they have these dreams in prison, and these dreams are interpreted by Joseph. And Joseph, through interpreting these dreams, um, shows that the baker was crooked. The baker is killed, and then the cupbearer goes back to work for Pharaoh. And Joseph asks him, says, don't forget about me. In fact, see if you can get me out of this prison, because I'm innocent. So the cupbearer goes back to work for Pharaoh and forgets about Joseph for years. And Joseph languishes in prison, forgotten by the cupbearer. But then Pharaoh has a dream, and nobody else can interpret it. But the cupbearer remembers, I know somebody that can. So he calls Joseph before him, and Joseph interprets the dream. Through through the series of events that unfold at that point, Joseph goes to work for Pharaoh. Turns out he's a pretty shrewd businessman, has the Midas touch. That whole land is going to undergo famine. And Joseph has some wisdom and insight into how the nation of Israel, the people of Egypt, or people of Egypt can be provided for. So Pharaoh puts him in charge of his kingdom. And then later on, his brothers, the ones that sold him into slavery, they're experiencing the famine firsthand. And they go to Egypt to get some food. And that little do they know, they're standing before their brother asking for grain. As the story unfolds, they eventually come to find out that that's their brother. But I want you to see God's purpose and design behind this. And listen to this passage in chapter 50, verse 20. Starting in actually 
Verse 19, Joseph said to them, do not fear for I, am I in the place of God? These guys are thinking he's going to kill them. He says, as for you, you brothers, you meant evil against me. You conspired, you planned, you designed evil against me. But God meant it for good. God designed and God planned and God conspired good through this whole thing to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The future of the nation of Israel was preserved through Joseph's travail. Other pictures of design in this whole thing, a few chapters before in chapter 45, verse 7, it says this, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. I thought it was the Midianites that took me away. No, it was God that sent me here. I thought it was my brothers that sold me into slavery. No, it was God that sent me here. I thought it was Potiphar and Potiphar's wife that conspired against me and slandered against me. No, it was God that sent me here via prison or via a pit, via a liar, via prison so that many would be preserved through that travail. God had design and God had purpose. Only God could do that. So the picture here is that he's talking to his disciples saying, your sorrow will be turned to joy. And what we really understand from a bigger picture of how God works is not only your sorrow will be turned into joy, but your sorrow is meant for joy. Only God could do that. His fingerprints are all over Joseph's story. It says that while he was in prison, that God relentlessly loved him. While he's in prison, God loved him. Only God could do that. The picture of the gospel is connected here of what's unfolding for these guys. Peter understands only seven weeks later, he says these words to the men of each Israel, preaching in the same city where his Christ will be crucified the very next day. Sounds like Peter paid attention. Listen to what he says. As men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man that I sat in the Garden of Gethsemane with seven weeks ago, helped me understand what was in store. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God meant this sorrow for joy. God meant this hour, this grief, this pain that these guys had in store for joy. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but you only did it according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. God's fingerprints are all over it. He meant it for good. What y'all meant for evil God meant for good. What y'all meant that you would celebrate in, that we would be sorrow in, sorrowful, God meant for joy. Sometimes it's easier to view a God versus Satan duality. That's kind of the world's view of it, and that's unfortunately a lot of the church's view of that. That God versus Satan, and God does good things, and Satan does bad things, and it makes it easier to blame somebody. 
When something crummy happens, we can put it on Satan. But what we've got to understand from this passage, from his handling of Joseph, from his, what he's telling his disciples right now, is that God works all things. That God has his fingerprints on all things. While it might be easier to blame Satan when you don't understand when something terrible has happened, it's got to do damage, horrible damage to your view of God. Because what do you ask of God? God, where were you? Snoozing? God, what happened to you when someone was raped? Did you have the day off? What happened when someone died? What happened when someone was in a car wreck? What happened when someone had cancer? What happens when a baby dies? God, were you snoozing? While it might be easier to blame Satan for all things, it does horrible damage to your view of God if you don't have an answer and understand that God works all things for good. Job helps us understand this story and how this works and these dynamics. Job, you may remember the story. It's helped people over the ages to understand Satan's role in things. Satan presents before God and asks Satan if he can have his way with somebody. And God says, how about my servant Job? So Satan, only by permission, takes his children, takes his flocks, takes his herds, takes his health, The only thing he doesn't take is his loving wife. And his wife asks him, say, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job says this to his wife. He says, what, do we accept only good from God and not calamity? Do we accept only good from God, another version says, and not evil? Are we going to put stuff on Satan not realizing that God's smile is behind that thing? That God was not snoozing. He was not off. He wasn't on vacation, but he was intimately involved in it with purpose and design like he will be for these men in the next few hours in this gruesome event that they watch unfold. We can accept a God who would allow and even ordain calamity knowing that he's on the other side delivering us and drawing us through it. He's glorified in and through the painful event if we'll but look for him. Don't put bad stuff on Satan. Look for God's fingerprints in that thing. Satan doesn't scratch his behind except for permission from the living God. Know it. He doesn't do a thing except by permission. As a staff, we're reading Pilgrim's Progress. It's my second or third time through Pilgrim's Progress and uh, this is a modern English version. If you don't um, have this or you haven't read this, I, I don't know how strongly I can urge you. Um, I'd like to figure out a way to urge you strong enough to where you'd follow through on reading this book. It's remarkable. Written by a man that was in prison while he's writing it. Chapter 5 is the chapter on the interpreter when Pilgrim meets with a man called the interpreter who's going to help him see the things that he needs to see for the journey that's in store. So over the course of the chapter, he meets the preacher. We read that passage a few months ago when Scott was uh, ordained as an elder. We met the preacher. In this chapter, we also meet the room that's swept clean by the gospel and the impact that the law had on it. 
We also meet two children, patience and passion. Later in the chapter, we pick up where I'm going to start reading. It says, Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand. Christian is the journeyman that's on the journey of faith. The interpreter took Christian and led him by the hand into a place where a fire was burning next to a wall. Standing by the wall was an individual who was continually throwing water on the fire to put it out. Yet the fire just burned higher and hotter. Christian asked, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace working in the heart. He who throws water on it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But as you see the fires burning higher and hotter in spite of it, you'll be shown the reason for that. With that, he took Christian around to the, pay attention, the other side of the wall, the unseen side, the hidden side of the wall. There he saw a man with a jar of oil in his hand, continually and secretly pouring the oil upon the fire. And again, Christian asked, what does this mean? The interpreter explained, this is Christ the author and perfecter of our faith. This is Christ who continually maintains the work already begun in the heart by applying the oil of His grace. Because of this, the souls of His people remain full of grace in spite of what the devil can do. In that you saw the man standing behind the wall to keep the fire burning, that's meant to teach you that it's hard for those tempted to see how this work of grace is continued in the soul because you can't see him. He's hidden in those sorrowful, difficult, painful hours. Christ is speaking to his disciples this evening and this that he's speaking here contextually and he knows the sorrow they'll face, but he has design and he has purpose. And the design and purpose is that that heartbreaking hour would eventually be their greatest joy. Verse 21 says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. He goes on with an illustration of a pregnant woman. We're going to explore the details of the dynamics of his illustration. But first, I want to consider just the nature of the illustration that he chose. It can't be coincidental that he chooses a pregnant woman to illustrate the sorrow to joy reality of what's unfolding in the following hours. I must have just put that picture up. It can't be coincidental. It is by design that he is using, of all things he could use to illustrate sorrow to joy, he picks the pain of childbearing. In Genesis chapter 3, it says this, listen. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. The thing I want you to connect to in these next couple minutes is connect to the reality that Jesus is sitting here probably thousands of years after this pronouncement is made to Eve and Adam and the snake and earth as a result of the fall. But I want you to know that Jesus was there when Eve was judged. I like Peter's formula. I don't want to be enslaved to it, but 
a day for the Lord is like a thousand years. So if a day for the Lord is like a thousand years, if God is speaking with Adam and Eve and the serpent 8,000 years before, then it's eight days for Jesus. I don't want to be enslaved to it. It's figurative, but let's just understand the gravity of it. This Jesus who's speaking to these disciples on the eve of his crucifixion about what's in store, about what's unfolding, picks an illustration that's connected to something that was at the beginning of the gospel, the fall of man. And the travail of childbirth is the illustration that he chooses. He was there when Eve was judged. It might as well have been last week when God, Father, Son, and Spirit punished Eve with the pain of childbearing. And here he's speaking to the sons of Eve. And he's pointing them to the joy that's in store. When he uses delivery pain as an illustration to show how sorrow is turned to joy, he's showing that the pain and the consequences of our human fallen condition are turned to joy in what he's about to do. This condition of man that's been around for a couple, uh, 8,000 years at this point, however old that period of time was between Adam and Eve and this night, he's pointing to the reality that what he's about to do is going to fix the broken. What he's about to do, he's going to straighten the crooked. He's going to redeem the hurting. This gospel is coming full circle in what's about to unfold the next day. So don't miss his choice of illustration. It is by design. The gospel is coming full circle. Now, as for pregnancy and delivery, he says specifically, he says, she has sorrow because her hour has come. We have three kids And I can tell you, as far as I remember, I don't remember sorrow. I remember, you know, Christy and I are not the most prepared. We didn't have like the suitcase packed, you know, sitting by the door. (laughs) We, I remember the night we were in Columbia, South Carolina. And she says, I think I'm starting to go into labor. And we were giddy. I mean, we were excited. We're going to go have a baby. And I don't remember the sorrow. And the reason I don't remember the sorrow is for a couple of reasons. I mean, we took these Lamaze classes and stuff. But really what I was putting my hope and faith and trust in was something called epidural. <laughs> I mean, we knew that was always there. Christy, the first time around, said, I think I'm going to try and go without it. You know, the steely-eyed child bearer. Wasn't long into it, and she said, where's that thing called epidural? <laughs> Man, I like epidural. It's my favorite. But I think about the sorrow of childbirth in this day and age when these words are spoken in over thousands of years before now, contemporary medicine, the childbirth must have, sorrow and childbirth must have been a reality. Without hospitals, without epidurals, how many mothers died? How many children died in delivery? How many moms spent how many hours gnawing on nothing but a piece of leather or a rag when there wasn't such thing as an epidural? The most gruesome, painful, ugly 
difficult. I mean, childbirth that I'm aware of in recent years took place this year with Samantha and Chad. And those of you who were in on it, you know what I'm talking about. Christy was in on it because she was sort of a teammate and a coach for Samantha. Samantha wanted to have this baby natural, which I know that's kind of a common thing for moms, and that's cool. I, I know of very few moms that have been able to make it through in recent, like Wendy. I know Wendy Atkinson. She didn't need any medicine. But most moms, man, they're, they're appreciating modern medicine. But Samantha, she's... She's going to be earthy and natural, right? But Samantha's labor was difficult. Let's show some of these pictures. Can you see that? I mean, she's being held up by Chad. Well, I don't know what Wendy's doing there, but it has probably something to do with it. <laughs> it's something to do with labor. Samantha said that she was in painful labor for 24 hours. 24 hours. That, that was not our story. Epidurals are, again, they're my favorite. Uh, they, they woke me up about five minutes before Christy started pushing. On all three kids. I'm like, oh, there they are. You know, I, that wasn't so bad. I don't even know why we bothered with Lamaze. The epidural was awesome. But Samantha, 24 hours She was in excruciating labor. Let's hit the next one. She's hurting. You have that video? It's a really short video, but I want you to see this video. I don't know how far along that is in labor, but she tried to smile at the beginning because she knew the camera was on her. But Samantha's hurting. She's hurting bad. Is that the last difficult picture? I want you to consider just Samantha's childbirth. Consider our Lord's illustration of childbirth and the travail of childbirth being the picture of the grief that they're about to endure and likely some of the heartbreaks that you've endured. Pain and suffering with no epidural in sight. Nothing to medicate, nothing to cover it, nothing to conceal it. And realize that it's God's way and in God's time to eventually bring joy. Let's put a picture of Henley up there. In God's time to bring joy. When I think about his illustration, I consider how could Noah remember the pain of a hundred years of ark building? A hundred years of saying, no, I'm not going to spend this gob of money on a bigger house. I'm not going to spend this time and effort on bigger barns. I'm going to spend these years and this time and this effort with my boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, building something that's never been built for something that's never happened under the jeers and insults of all humanity. But how could Noah remember the jeers and the insults while he's walking on the green ground of a newborn earth? It'd be like holding Henley. What pain? What travail? How could Abraham remember the agony and pain of childlessness and the quietness of their tents? 
except for Sarah's complaining. When he's hearing the coo and the laughter of little Isaac. How could Joseph remember the agony of his brothers taking his favorite coat, tearing it up, putting lamb goat blood all over it? How could he remember the agony of being thrown into a pit? How could he remember the agony of being slandered by Potiphar's wife or the agony of being forgotten in prison? How could he remember those things in light of having his family in Goshen? Preserved, alive, and healthy, and having the favor of Egypt. How could he remember the travail? How could Israel remember the travail and the trial of slavery in Egypt while they're enjoying the milk and the honey of the promised land? How could they remember the brick or the whip when they're living in houses that they didn't build, drinking from cisterns that they didn't dig? And there's joy in stores, just God's way. How could the disciples remember the agony and the pain and the sorrow of that night and the next day in light of an empty tomb? In light of seeing their Savior risen, cooking fish on the seashore. How could they remember the sorrow and the grief and the pain? How could they carry pain and sorrow knowing what that gruesome day accomplished? How could they? But while you're in the middle of it, middle of it is dreadful. Ask Samantha. Ask anyone else in this body who's gone through the travail of some heartbreak or some difficulty. It may last your whole lifetime. I think about those in slavery for 400 years. There were people who lived and died in slavery, calling out to their Yahweh year after year and never hearing Him, waiting for the fullness of the wickedness of the Amorites to come in. They don't know that. God's smile was so hidden, but God was always at work through it. He had a big plan for joy. He had a big plan for Exodus, but while you're in the middle of it, it's dreadful and God seems far away. How many nights did Noah spend sleepless thinking about the time and the expense and the suffering? How many nights did Abraham wonder where God was while Sarah complained? How many nights did Joseph spend wondering where God went? How many Israelites lived and died in the throes of slavery? The intensity and the agony of a drug-free childbirth is a good picture of the pain we experience in trial, but there's rich joy on the other side. Right? There's rich joy on the other side. This difficult hour will be there and ours 2,000 years later as we look at it, our highest joy. Verse 22, he tells him, he says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. He's speaking of and pointing to permanent joy, enduring joy that no one can take. Joy that braves scourgings, imprisonment, disembowelment, crosses, suffering, loss, trials, shipwreck, pain, difficulty of every kind. Understand the significance of what's about to unfold in the following hours in retrospect will change their attitude about everything. 
Does it change yours? It's supposed to. That one event is supposed to change your perspective on everything. Now as to the coming sorrow, verse 32, he says, Behold, the hour is coming. He's speaking of the painful, difficult hour of the cross. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He shares an important contrast in this passage. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. It's a guarantee. He says, while in the world you may or you will have tribulation, you may have peace in me. The world will infallibly bring trouble. It is a guarantee, but take heart because he's overcome that world and that trouble. That word in the Greek, overcome, is a perfect tense verb. We don't have perfect tense in our language. Perfect tense could be described as something that happens at a point in time, like a past tense event, but that has effects that reverberate and continue. So he's saying, I have overcome the world at a point in time when he said it's finished. That means it's finished. The work was accomplished. Yet that work reverberates here 2,000 years later as we sit and soak and bathe in it and enjoy it. I have overcome the world. Means it's an abiding victory. Also from this passage, he gives the second bookend The first book in he gave in chapter 16, verse 1. He said, I've said these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then here in verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. These are bookends that point to the gravity of his words. That perseverance and peace, the very thing that I beg for in y'all, the very thing that I want in myself and my family, come with his words. His simple words, exposed and enjoyed week by week by week. You see why we're so urgent about when you're gone for a period of time or when we don't see you dining for a period of time, we're urging you, please eat. I want you to persevere. I want you to have peace. And for the periods of time you step away from it, I can watch you. You have no peace. You won't find it apart from his words. His words fuel Perseverance, his words provide peace. And in this context, because they're good news words that give perspective, that lead us behind the wall to see a hidden Christ, to see a hidden design and a hidden purpose, to see a Christ pouring oil on the fire. These words show us a hidden smile of God. Good news of this message is not only the event of this hour that he's preparing these disciples for, but every travail, every trial, you name it. Insert your problem in this section and realize that the good news is that he's not at work in just a few special trials. His smile is not hidden behind just a few dark hours. 
But he's smiling and at work through all of them. Romans 8, 28 says, All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. All things means all things. Not some things. All things. All griefs. All sorrows. Every travail, every loss, every death, every suffering, every cancer, every abandonment, every job that's lost. He's smiling for those who are called according to his purpose. And he has a plan and a method at work for his glory. Ephesians 1.11 says he works all things according to the kind intention of his will. He never sleeps. He doesn't snooze. All things means all things. These words provide peace and perseverance. They're good news words. And they lead us to what Paul told the Philippians to do. Rejoice in all things. I say Again, I say rejoice in all things. They lead us to what he told the Thessalonians to be thankful in all circumstances. All circumstances? Be thankful about this cancer? Be thankful about this loss? Be thankful about this grief? Be thankful about this pain? Yes, because we know that his hidden smile is behind it. Because we know he's standing behind the wall pouring oil on the fire. And there's design and purpose. We can understand James when he says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Count it all joy because he is involved in all things. We have a good God that is always awake, who designs and plans and purposes travail for his glory and our joy. Knowing that gives peace. Close with a quote from Bunyan. I'm reading a book about him and a couple other guys right now that's called The Hidden Smile of God. Bunyan said these words. He said, we should be overgrown with flesh if we had not our own seasonable winters. He says, it is said that in some countries trees will grow but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. We need winter. This calamity this difficulty that Christ speaks of is the ultimate winner for these men but you're the fruit we're the fruit that he bore through it let's pray God I pray that through this picture of sorrow turned into joy and sorrow meant for joy that we can have a new perspective on all things I pray that we can have a new perspective on children with disabilities. I pray too that kids, even some that I'm thinking of right now, can have a new perspective on their disability. I pray for men whose wives have left them that they can have a new perspective that God is still good that somehow he can work that for good. I pray for people who've lost their jobs with no explanation and no preparation or for those who see their jobs waning. They can see the hidden smile of God behind it.
Lord, I pray for those who have lost that they can feel family members who left too soon, friends that they've lost too early, and that we can see somehow your hidden smile behind that. That we can know that you never sleep, that you have a plan for sorrow that's meant for joy. Lord, I pray that in every travail we can see a little Henley. We can enjoy the new birth that you work through this dark hour. And it'll change our perspective on all things so that we can rejoice in all things. Lord, we are thankful for our Christ and his finished work. We're thankful that that word overcome is perfect tense and that it reverberates into this very moment and reverberates into the future forevermore. Lord, we love you and we trust you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to share kind of a devotional thought from this passage. It's really pretty rich. This temptation to not include it in the message, but it seemed very appropriate for the supper. In verse 32 of this chapter, chapter 16, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered. He's speaking of the cross. Each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. The thing that shocks me is that Christ knew what the disciples would do before it happened. He wasn't somehow holding in their hope that, man, I hope the disciples hang in there. He knew that they would bail on him. And yet he went to that cross knowingly. He didn't go to the cross because there was anything redeeming in these men. There was anything of value in these men. He didn't go die for some people that had value. He died for men that showed themselves unworthy. And in his death, he reckons them righteous. That's the shock and the scandal of the gospel. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one deserves what Christ has done for us. As we enjoy the cross, as we enjoy his finished work, as we enjoy the empty tomb, and a very seated, finished work, and a seated Lord, we enjoy those things in this meal. This meal takes us to the cross. And we enjoy all those things that we're caught up in. We enjoy that righteousness that we're clothed in that's not our own. And we call out yet again, Lord, clothe us, cover us in the blood of Jesus. Thank you so much for that finished work. It's a scandal. We enjoy it. That's called worship. Let's worship together as we enjoy the supper. William Cowper, from what I understand, he could be a guy that his life illustrated that he lived, he'd be an illustration of a guy that lived in Egypt his whole life under slavery, figuratively. He tried to take his life on multiple occasions, wrestled with depression his entire life, was in and out of mental institutions, mental wards. This guy loved Jesus. said, God moves in mysterious ways as wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. 
Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. And that's rich. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning, frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's take and eat. This, um, these sort of things like we can engage today, they, and they're so, oh so real and tangible. I hope that you can connect to some things that see how God can use or maybe has used some of your sorrows. Because we serve a God that's turned, already turned all sorrows into joy. You know, the world can't say that. Because stuff that's really bad and ugly is just really bad and ugly. There's no hope to those sort of things. But for those who are called according to his purpose, those ugly things work together for good somehow. So, man, that's, that's encouraging. Um, we have our little versions as the McGraw family. Our, our marriage has been one of those travails. And we're enjoying one of the sweetest times in our marriage that I think I've ever imagined. Hadn't always been that way, though. We've lived in Egypt. <laughs> but if you press on, he'll be glorified through it. If we had bailed on it, we'd miss out on his glory. Um, our kids, their vision, that's a hard deal, but it's, we see his fingerprints on it. He, knits, he knitted them together in the womb. He wasn't snoozing. He wasn't off duty that day. He's got a plan for glory. Planning a church and the pain and the agony of walking with people and seeing them come and go and flourish and fail and seeing myself flourish and fail. He uses that somehow for his glory. If we press on and persevere and endure and if we let these words do what they did for the disciples, we persevere if we find peace. That's what those words do. I hope you're finding peace this morning, maybe in something that you hadn't. Or he might be equipping you for something where you'll need to find peace. You'll know, need to know where to grab. I'll stand and we'll dismiss. If you are, um, let me just say too, if you are, like you haven't been in church before and you're visiting Crosspoint, you've never been in a church or you hadn't been in a church in a long time or, and you're wanting to know what it means to follow Christ, walk with the people in faith. Know and be known. It's, you can't do it by yourself. You need brothers and sisters next to you, other, other journeymen, other Christians on the pilgrim journey to encourage you and pick you up. You need interpreters along the way. You need all those things that Pilgrim's Progress points to. John Bunyan found is important. And let's just take it from there. Get to know people. Small groups is a good way to do that. It's not the only way, but it's a good way. 
Go to lunch with somebody right now that you don't know, you don't recognize. Introduce yourself to somebody that you don't know, you don't recognize. And encourage them on their journey. All right, let me pray. God, thank you so much for the good news. Thank you that it is, in fact, good news in a really difficult context. We really take in our condition. We take in the sorrow and the grief and the guarantee that the world will offer tribulation infallibly. We are so grateful that you've already overcome the world. And that you've already made all sorrows joy. We're blessed by that encouragement. We enjoy it. We enjoy what was lost in Genesis 3 has been recovered fully and completely in the cross. We love you, Lord. We enjoy you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.